Namaskaram. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about the uh, 17th paragraph of Nana. Um, a few months ago, we did the 16th paragraph. The, the main central idea in the 16th paragraph is Bhagavan was emphasizing that what all the um, what all the Advaitic texts teach us is that um, uh, to attain mukti, it's necessary to uh, bring about the cessation of the mind, in other words, the destruction of the mind. And after knowing this, there's no point in going on uh, studying texts without limit. That is, the implication is not that we shouldn't study texts at all, but that our, our study of texts should be focused to the texts that are really useful, the texts that, uh, like Bhagavan's works, that are constantly emphasizing the need for us to turn back within. Um, so he goes on to say that uh, in order to um, make the mind cease, um, it's, uh, it's necessary for us to investigate ourselves. And we can't investigate ourselves in books. We have to investigate ourselves within ourselves. That's the central idea. So there he's, he's, he's what he's, that is many, uh, uh, in classical Advaita, or well, many people who study classical Advaita, they come to the conclusion that in order to know what we actually are, we need to study all the texts. What Bhagavan is basically repudiating that. And he says, what the term Atmavichara actually means is keeping our mind fixed on ourselves. Uh, in other words, being self-attentive. Um, so, uh, um, <clears throat> that that was the idea, and then he ended that paragraph saying, uh, "At one time, it will become necessary to forget all that one has learned." This seventeenth paragraph is, to a certain extent, a continuation of that idea. That is, if we read all the traditional uh, texts of Vedanta, of Advaita, a lot of them go into unnecessary descriptions, which have uh, which are of no use to enable us to know ourselves. Uh, many of them talk about the the tattvas that are described in um, in. Uh, in uh, Sankhya philosophy, um, the tattvas are basically the ontological principles. And different schools of thought have different ideas, uh, enumerate different uh, ontological principles. Um, but, uh, uh, but according to Bhagavan, there's only one ontological principle. There's one thing that actually exists, and that is only ourself. So uh, what Bhagavan says in this um, in this paragraph, it's just two sentences. One is a long sentence, one is a short sentence. Um, he uses an analogy here. Um, I'll, I'll first I'll read the meaning of the sentence, and um, and then um, I'll uh, I'll, um, I'll I'll explain a bit more. That is what Bhagavan says. First, he gives the analogy. Just as one who needs to gather or sweep up and throw away rubbish would derive no benefit by examining it, that's the analogy, he, then what that is analogous to, so one who needs to know oneself will derive no benefit by 
instead of collectively rejecting all the tattvas, which are concealing oneself, calculating that they are this many and examining their qualities. In the very originally, when Bhagavan um, was answering Shiva Kashan Pillai, he actually gave this. Um, he uh, he described the analogy in more detail. He talked about the, the rubbish in a barber shop. That is, at the end of the day, there'll be so much hair on the floor in a barber shop. So what the barber has to do is to sweep it all up and throw it away. Instead of doing so, if he begins to analyze the hairs, how many gray hairs, how many black hairs, how many red hairs, how many blonde hairs, how, how many short hairs, how many medium-sized hairs, how many long hairs, how many straight hairs, how many curly hairs. If, he, if he's, uh, and how, total how many hairs, if he's calculating all this, this is of no use because the hair has been cut off, it's rubbish, it's to be discarded. Likewise, all the tattvas described in these uh, texts, they are all things other than ourselves. So uh, knowing all about how many tattvas there are is of absolutely no use at all if we want to know what we actually are. So what Bhagavan is saying here, just like a, the, 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 barber, the, the rubbish in the barber shop should be swept up and thrown away uh, without analyzing it or being concerned about how, uh, how many there are, likewise, we should not concern ourselves with all these descriptions given in the text about how many ontological principles there are. But one thing we need to know is who am I? So we should investigate ourselves. That is the implication here. We shouldn't concern ourselves with all these descriptions about other things because everything other than ourselves is, um, is an atma. It's, something, it, it, it is, it's not what we actually are. And all, everything other than ourselves appears, as Bhagavan explained in so many places, it appears only in the view of ourselves as ego. It's only when we rise as ego in waking and dream, but other things seem to exist. So analyzing what constitute, what are the ontological principles that constitute all other things is of no use whatsoever. Um, so, as I say, this in a sense, Bhagavan here, he's, he's uh, reiterating from a slightly different angle, the implication of the previous paragraph. Our only concern should be to know who am I, not to study unnecessarily all the different um, uh, uh, philosophical classifications of what are the ontological principles and so on. Um, and elsewhere, Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 40, um, I think it's probably 42 or 40, 43, 43 of uh, Akshramlai, he begins by saying, Tane, Tane, Tatvam. That means oneself alone. Oneself alone is, is the Tatva. Tatva uh, means um, the literal meaning of Tatva is thatness, but it implies what actually exists. So, according to Bhagavan, the only thing that actually exists is ourself. Nothing else actually exists. Everything else is just an appearance. And it all appears only in the view of ego, which is itself an appearance. Um, the underlying reality of ego is our real nature, the pure awareness I am. That alone is what is real. Uh, everything else is just an illusory appearance. 
Um, so Bhagavan is, is just emphasizing here, but all we need to know is to know what we ourselves actually are. We need not concern ourselves about other things. And then there's another sh uh, short sentence in which he says, uh, it is necessary to consider the world like a dream. Um, the word he uses here for world is prapanja. Prapanja uh, means what is spread out. Um, so the, uh, the, um, from the perspective of Bhagavan's teaching, the significance of this word prapanja is that everything is just a projection. So it's all spread out. It's projected from within. Um, what actually exists is just one thing, namely ourself. But we see ourselves as all these many things. We, we see ourselves as if we are spread out as many things. So that, that's the significance of the word prapanja. In other texts, they explain prapanja as being the prapanja is a, an expansion of all the tattvas. That is, they, they, they enumerate tattvas. First, you have... Um, uh, Mahat, and from Mahat comes Ahankara, and from Ahankara come the subtle elements, and from the subtle elements something else comes, and eventually you get the gross elements. It, 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 there's a long uh, list of how one uh, set of ontological principles uh, 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 are derived from another set, and it's, it's all, all, all this. It's all as if everything is an expansion of um, all these uh, ontological principles. But according to Bhagavan, it's all just a dream. It's an expansion of our own mind, our own ego. So we need not concern ourselves about ontological principles when these ontological principles are meant to explain only one thing, the world appearance. And according to Bhagavan, the simplest and most accurate description, explanation of the world appearance is it's just a dream. It appears in our mind, to our mind, by our mind. It has no, it has no existence independent of our mind. That's why he says we need to consider the world like a dream. Um, the word he uses here for like is pole. Pole is a, uh, is a word of comparison. So some people ask about this. Then is Bhagavan saying that the world isn't actually a dream, it's just like a dream? No, that is not the sense here. He, when he says it's like a dream, he means it is a dream. It's, it, it's, in, it's no different to a dream, as he explains in more detail in the next paragraph, which we can talk about next month. So um, th this is quite a, a short paragraph, um, so it didn't take long to explain it. So um, now we can come to the, the questions. Okay. Do you have them there? How would you like I, us? I, to I, I've got the questions. Do you want me to read them or do you want to read them? Or do you want uh, to no, ask the people who ask the questions to read them? Go ahead and read them. I see one of the two questions uh, writers is here, David Roberts. Namaste. Uh, sure, I can ask the question. Yes. Um, thank you, Michael. Right. Uh, in the opening of Nanyar, Bhagavan says, everyone has the greatest love for himself, or indeed, I guess, herself. Yep. And he also says, love itself is the actual form of God. And that's from the letters from Sri Ramanashram, letter 179. So, Michael, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the place of love in Bhagavan's teaching. 
uh, for example, would he say that love and self are one and the same? And if so, why wouldn't he invite us to investigate love as well as self? Uh, yes, love, love is our real nature. That is why we love ourselves. That is what he is arguing in the first paragraph of Nana, in the first sentence. He's, he, that is, he gives various reasons why happiness, I mean, how we can, reasons why we should conclude that happiness is our real nature. Uh, obviously, for Bhagavan, happiness is our real nature. That's his actual experience. But because for us, happiness doesn't seem to be our nature because we often seem to be unhappy. He, he gives us reasons there why we should, uh, why it is reasonable for us to accept that happiness is our real nature. And since happiness is our real nature, in order to experience that happiness, it's necessary for us to know ourselves. That is the, the main idea in that first sentence. Um, so one of the reasons he gives uh, well, he, the, the, what, what he says in that sentence, it's, it's probably to put this all in context, it's probably worth going through that, um, that first uh, sentence because it's a very, very important sentence. And incidentally, this first paragraph was not part of the original question and answers. Bhagavan wrote this paragraph uh, when he... Um, <laughs> when he uh, uh, rewrote the questions and answers in the form of an essay. So that's, that's how important this first paragraph is. So what he says in this, um, in this paragraph, he gives uh, a number of reasons. The first reason is, since all uh, uh, jivas, that means all sentient beings, want or like to be always happy, happy without what is called misery. So we all, what we all desire is to be happy. Um, and we desire to be free of misery also. That's first reason. Second reason, since this is the, the portion you, you have asked about, since for everyone, the greatest love is only for oneself. There's, uh, incidentally, the way it's actually worded in Tamil, there's no gender there. Uh, so it's not saying for himself or for herself. So the, uh, since there's no gender referred to in, in the original, I translated it as just everyone has greatest love only for oneself. Um, that's the second reason. And the third reason is since happiness alone is the cause for love. So from these three reasons, how can we, how can we conclude that happiness is our real nature? That is the, the third reason. Happiness alone is the cause for love. That means we, we all love those things that we believe will make us happy. And we, uh, we, we dislike those things that we think will make us unhappy. So it's the, the cause for love is happiness. What, what we believe will, will contribute to our happiness, those things we love. What will not contribute to our happiness, those things we don't love. And But we all have greatest love for ourselves. What does that indicate? That indicates that we ourselves are happiness. And then the other reason is the one thing that we all want is happiness. 
Um, he doesn't give the, the, the he doesn't elaborate upon this more here, but in other places he's elaborated upon this. He uh, Bhagavan said um, he used an analogy to illustrate this. He said, when a person has a headache, uh, when whenever we have a headache, we want to be free of the headache. Why? Because having a headache is something unnatural. We, we, we seek to be free of the, the headache because we want to be restored to our natural state, which is the state without a headache. So uh, we, all, uh, we all have a natural liking for what is natural. So our real nature is happiness. That's why we all like to be happy. So um, these are the, the, the three uh, um, initial reasons he gives. And then in the main clause of the sentence, which itself has several sub-clauses, he incorporates a, another reason. What he says in the rest of the sentence is that those first three clauses were since clauses. Then he says, in order to obtain that happiness, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in dreamless sleep, which is the void of mind. This is the other reason. That is, every day in sleep, we um, we experience it, sleep is a state devoid of mind. That means it's devoid of everything because all phenomena appear only in the view of the mind. So in sleep, there's no awareness of any objects or phenomena because there's no mind. So all that exists in sleep is only ourself. And in sleep, we are perfectly happy. Nobody complains about, uh, oh, I don't want to go to sleep. I'm so unhappy in sleep. We, we all, um, when we're tired enough, we all crave sleep because sleep is a very calm and peaceful and happy state. So since nothing else exists in sleep to contribute to our happiness, we can infer from that since we're happy in the state where we're devoid of everything else, uh, that means that happiness is our real nature. So he's giving another reason here. So what he says in this clause, I say, in order to obtain that happiness, which is one's own nature, that means it's what we actually are, uh, which one experiences daily in dreamless sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. In other words, in order to be happy, since we ourselves are happiness, in order to be happy, we need to know ourselves. Um, so long as we don't know ourselves, what that, that is the happiness that we actually are is infinite and unalloyed happiness. Um, we, when we rise as ego, we can never experience in, infinite and unalloyed happiness because ego is finite. So whatever it experiences is finite. So in order to experience the infinite happiness that we actually are, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. It's as simple as that. And then in the, uh, that's the first sentence. And then in the second sentence, he says, for that, jnana vichara, jnana here means awareness. So jnana vichara means awareness investigation, called who am I? Alone is the principal means. Um, so here he's talking about, he's, he's, in, as I say, in that third clause, he says, happiness alone is the cause for love. Um, but we can equally well say uh, love is the cause for happiness. If you love something and you get that thing that you love, that will make you happy. So though 
in our in the in the realm of duality, happiness and love seem to be two different things, each being the cause for the other. In actual fact, both are our own real nature. That is, happiness is our real nature. Happiness is what we actually are. And equally well, love is what we actually are. Bhagavan doesn't say that explicitly here, but it's an implication we can infer from this. And he does he does indicate it explicitly in so many other places. He says happiness is our, he says love is our own real nature. He makes this particularly clear in um, Arunachya Stutipanchakam. Uh, Arunachya Stutipanchakam means the five hymns that he uh, composed on Arunachala. If we read those hymns, that is, superficially, if we read the hymns, these are hymns in praise of God in the form of a hill. But in so many places, he's indicating that though Aranatra appears outwardly in the form of a hill, so long as we're looking outwards, the reality of Aranatra is what is shiny in our heart as I. He said that explicitly in some places. In so many places, he talks about Aranatra shining in the heart. So, what he means by our own natural is our own real nature, what we actually are. Um, so uh, then why, if our natural is what we actually are, why do we need to pray to our natural? We, we could ask. There's a simple reason for that. That is, our own real nature is infinite. When we rise as ego, we identify ourselves as a certain person, as a body. This body or person is obviously finite. So, so long as we experience ourselves as this infinite, uh, uh, sorry, as this finite entity, um, this person, uh, we seem to be something different to the infinite whole that we actually are. So, God seems to be other than ourselves so long as we rise as ego. That is, we rise as ego by taking the form of a body as ourself. And so long as we experience ourself as a form, God also seems to be a form to us. That is, whatever idea we may have about God, even if our idea of God is, oh, no, no, I don't believe in uh, God having a form. I believe God is formless. The very idea that God is formless, that idea is a form. So we cannot know the formless nature of God so long as we don't know our own formless nature, because what is formless is infinite. Because, and what it has form is finite, because all forms, what are forms? If a form in the philosophical sense in which Bhagavan is talking about forms, he's not just talking about physical forms. He, anything that is in any way distinguishable from any other thing is a form. In, in the sense in which Bhagavan uses the term. So that which is formless, it, it has no, it, it is formless because it has got no limitations. So it, it cannot be separate from anything else. Uh, but so long as we limit ourselves as a form, God, who is our own real nature, seems to be a form. So that is why Bhagavan um, sang Arunachas Dutipanchikam, seemingly addressed to an outward form, but constantly emphasizing that what he's what the outward form that he's referring to is actually what is the, the real nature of that outward form is the real nature of ourself. It's what's shining in our heart as I. So 
in so many places in uh, Arunachala's Dutipanchakam, Bhagavan talks about Arunachala being Amburu, the very form of love. Form there means, uh, it doesn't mean that love has a form. It means the, the love is the very nature of God. Love is the very nature of Arunachala. And since Arunachala is our own real nature, what do we have to infer? We ourselves are love. That is the implication. And there is um, one verse in, uh, in Aksharamlai, verse 101, where Bhagavan makes this implication very clear. He, what he prays in that verse is, um, That means, lovingly melt me as love in you the form of love. Like, or it begins with an analogy, like ice in water, lovingly melt me as love in you, the form of love. So you is Arunachala. So Arunachala is the form of love. That means Arunachala is the very embodiment of love. Arunachala is love itself. And he, he but, but the analogy he uses there is a very significant analogy because what is ice? Ice is only water. Ice is not anything other than water. It seems to be something other than water because it's frozen, because it's hard. So Bhagavan is comparing us as ego to a lump of ice. This lump of ice is floating in the vast ocean of love. It seems to be something other than love because it's we, we are frozen, we are hard-hearted. So the, the prayer there, it's a very, very beautiful prayer. Bhagavan says, melt me as love in you, the form of love. If, if ice was not water, if it was something other, it could never become one with the ocean, even if it would dissolve. Supposing you had a, um, a, a piece of iron and you were to melt the piece of iron, it wouldn't become one with the ocean uh, because it's a, separate, it, it's a different substance. But the water and the ice are both the same substance. So the implication there is our substance and the substance of Arunachala are one and the same. That is, and that substance is love. That is, the water there in that analogy is it's an analogy for love. So we are just like a little frozen piece of love. But, but our real nature is the infinite ocean of love. So Bhagavan prays, prays to Arunacha, melt me as love in you, the form of love. So that's a, such a beautiful prayer because it, it's clearly a debating in meaning because ice and water are not two different things. They're one and the same thing. The difference between ice and water is only a difference in appearance. It's not a difference in substance. In substance, they're one and the same thing. Like the difference between us and God is only a difference in appearance. In substance, we and God are one thing, namely what is often described as sat, chit, ananda. Sat means pure being. Chit means pure awareness. Ananda means pure happiness. But these are not three different things. That is, sat is chit, uh, and sat is ananda. Ananda is sat and chit. That's all. The three are the, the three descriptions are given. It's describing the same thing. So our own being is itself awareness and itself is happiness, and it is also love. Uh, another term that is used less frequently than sat ananda, but is often used in the same sense, is asti bhati priyam. Uh, 
Asti means being. Bhati means shining. That is the awareness is shining. And Priyam means love. Because happiness and love are one and the same thing. So, yes, definitely, according to Bhagavan, happiness is our... Uh, love is happiness and love are one and the same thing, and they are our own real nature. So, was that a clear answer? And does that answer your question adequately? David? Thank you, Michael. Yes, a beautiful explanation <laughs> and answer to well, my. It's not my explanation, it's all Bhagavan's explanation. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had even just a fraction of the love that Bhagavan very obviously uh, expresses. And yet, when I realize it, I do. <laughs> exactly. Why, why are we all here? Why, we could be, there are so many other things we could be doing. We could go to the cinema and watch a film, or we could go and watch a sports match, or we could uh, get involved in a political discussion, or there's so many things we could be doing. What is it that has drawn us here? Something has attracted us. That is because Bhagavan has sown the seed of love in our heart, we are drawn to this path. That's why we, uh, we are asking such questions and talking about such subject is because he's already sown that seed of love in our heart. Because he is the infinite ocean of love, so it's his very nature to put that seed of love in our heart. He is always nurturing that seed, but we also need to play our part in the nurturing of it. That is... That love is the love to turn within and to be what to know and to be what we actually are. But how can we, how in order to allow that love to grow, we need to yield ourselves to it? That is, Bhagavan often used to say, grace. And grace is just a term, but it's, it's, a, it's a term that refers to the love that Bhagavan has for us. So Bhagavan often said, um, Grace is pushing from outside and pulling from within. So there's always an inward pull, drawing our attention back within. But in order for our attention to be drawn back within, we need to be willing to yield ourselves to it. Bhagavan is trying to pull us back within. If we are enthusiastically rushing outwards, we are not yielding ourselves to his pull. So that is why following this path is so important. Though it ultimately... Bhagavan often used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Uh, that is, it's grace that draws us to this path. It's grace that leads us along the path and motivates us to follow the path. And eventually it is grace that is going to swallow us. Because grace is Bhagavan himself. Bhagavan and his grace are not two different things. Grace, as I say, just that is, in Bhagavan's view, we are not, he doesn't see us as anything other than himself. So since he doesn't see us as Abhaman himself, he loves each and every one of us as himself. He doesn't love us as the person we seem to be. He loves us as we actually are. So because he, that infinite love that he has for us as we actually are is what we experience as his grace. So grace and love are one and the same thing. So that, that, that love that, that is always drawing our attention back within. But because of our 
uh, the strength of our outward going inclination. We are always jumping outwards. So by trying to follow the path that Bhagavan has taught us, trying to turn our attention within to see what we actually are, we are yielding ourselves to his grace. So, um, so uh, self-investigation and self-surrender are not two different things. They're one and the same. That is, we can surrender ourselves only by investigating ourselves. So Bhagavan sometimes said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti means love. But though he said bhakti is the mother of jnana, that's, that's one way of putting it. But, but it, he also emphasized that but, but bhakti and jnana are not two different things. The very nature of jnana, jnana means pure awareness, and bhakti means pure love. Pure love and pure awareness are one and the same thing. David, thank you very much for your question. Did you get a satisfactory answer? <laughs> and do you have any follow-up comments before we move on? Very good. Thanks. 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 Let's, Michael, move on to the second question. I don't see that person here. So why don't you read the question and yes. give us your answer? Okay. Um, the other question was, um, I love Ramana. My self-inquiry practice is extremely helpful, and I see the world and its inhabitants as an illusion. Yet, when serious illness, suffering, or fear strike, I feel helpless. My self-inquiry is there, but it doesn't tend to calm me or reassure me very much when I'm directly under stress. Question. Why not? What... Uh, what am I doing wrong, and how can this be changed? Um, that is, when we say we see the world as an illusion, this is for us just an idea. That is, before coming to Bhagavan or before learning about Advaita, we um, naturally believe this world to be real. Um, after after studying Advaita or studying Bhagavan's teachings, we come to know this world is just an unreal appearance. It appears only in our mind. So it is just an illusion. It has no real existence of its own. But when we say we um we uh we uh when we say we accept that, it's still just an uh, just a um an idea in our mind that the world is real. Our actual experience is that the world is real. Why is that? Because what is actually real is only ourself. But when we rise as ego, we experience ourselves as I am this body. So since I is real, and I seems to be this body, this body also seems to be real. And since the body seems to be real, the whole world seems to be real because the body is a part of a world. The body can't be real when the rest of the world is unreal. So it, it's inevitable. So long as we rise as ego, we always experience the current body and current world as real. The current body we experience as I and the current world we experience as real. Because we experience the body as I, the body seems to be real and therefore the world seems to be real. We can understand this if we consider our experience in sleep, in sorry, in dream. In dream, so long as we are dreaming, 
but dream world seems to be real. Why is that? Because in dream, we always experience ourselves as a part of the dream world. That is, we experience ourselves as a person, as a body in that dream world. So since we experience that body as I, the body seems to us to be real, and hence the whole dream world seems to be real. So, so often in dream, things very things that in the waking state we would consider impossible happen. We may find ourselves flying, or we may find ourselves being um, chased by some big monster. We may even think to ourselves, how can there be such a monster? There's no such a, so no such monster actually exists. And we may even think, oh, this is a dream. We may think that, but it's, it, just because we think it's a dream doesn't make the monster any less terrifying, because the monster, to us, it seems to be real. Um, so, uh, so long as we are, and sometimes another instance in dream, sometimes we find ourselves on, on the edge of a cliff or just at the edge of a tall building. We, we look down, see the, fall, the drop, and we feel fear but we don't want to fall down. Why do we feel fear? Because it all seems to us to be so real. But as soon as we wake up, that is, as soon as we leave that dream and come to this dream, we are able to recognize that that dream was, a, was just a dream. It wasn't real. Why, why were, did it seem so real so long as we were experiencing it and cease to seem real as soon as we cease experiencing it, the reason is very simple. So long as we are dreaming, we experience the dream body as I, and therefore the dream world seems to be real. As soon as we uh, leave that dream and come to this dream, our identification with the dream body seems to be is, is severed. So in dream, our body may have been injured. We may have been attacked by a tiger, and uh, we may have uh, our arm may have been bitten off. But when we wake up, it's a different body. There's no injury on this body and uh, all our limbs are intact. So our identification, we, that we were a moment before we were identifying that dream body as I. A moment later, we experienced his waking body as I. As soon as we experienced his waking body as I, we're able to recognize, oh, that body was not real. That was not what I actually am. So since a dream body no longer seems to be real, the dream no longer seems to be real. So as soon as we wake up, we recognize it was a dream. But so long as we were dreaming, we seemed to be awake and the world we, we were experiencing seemed to be real. So um, it's easy to say, I see the world on its inhabitants as an illusion, but that's still just a, it's, it's an, a concept, it's an idea in our mind. It may be useful to look upon the world as a dream, like Bhagavan said in the, uh, the last sentence of that um, 17 paragraph of Nana, which I was uh, talking about earlier. He says, it is necessary to consider the whole world as uh, to be like a, a, a like a dream, in other words, we should consider the world to be no different to a dream. Um, uh, um, so it, it, it's good to look upon everything as unreal, but it is not our experience. Our experience is it, it is real. So all our all our um, all our conceptual understanding comes to very uh, amounts to very little when we're up against real problems. Oh, 
problems that seem to us to be real. Of course, no problems are real because they appear only um, in, in waking dream. They disappear in sleep, so they have no reality, actually, but they seem very real. So when we are facing, uh, if we have a serious illness or if, um, or if we suffer, for example, bereavement, or if we're in a very dangerous situation, we, we feel intense fear, or if we're in a very stressful situation, if we're not able to pay our bills or um, we've had a falling out with uh, some very close friend or, um, or our, uh, our boss at work has decided to sack us. Or, so, I mean, there's so many situations in life where we are under stress um, for one reason or another. At, the, at those times, our our philosophical understanding, our understanding that all this is unreal, has, has very little force on our mind. That, that is, it, the more we are convinced that this world is real, the less impact we will, less impact we'll feel when we're faced with danger, we're faced with illness and everything. Because so, supposing suddenly t tomorrow we go to the doctor and the doctor tells us we have... Um, uh, a terminal case of cancer and we're going to be dead in uh, we won't live for more than two or three months if we weren't following Bhagavan's path if we were uh, say living a very worldly life that would be a death sentence for us it would be I mean it'd be the, the worst possible thing we could worst possible news we could hear um, but if we follow Bhagavan's path if we if we are really convinced of his teachings and are really following them deeply, our attitude will be different. Okay, we, we all know this body is, this body was born, it's going to die one day. I, I was thinking I maybe had another 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, 50 years ahead of me. It turns out I've only got a few months ahead of me. What does it matter? Bodies come and bodies go. None of this is real. Um, and whatever happens in this life, it all happens according to the will of Bhagavan, so it's all for good. So by thinking like this, if we're able to think like this, we'll obviously be impacted less by that news than we would have been if we were very attached to our life in this body. So uh, I'm not saying that our, our conceptual understanding is of no use, but that conceptual understanding has to become a deep inner clarity. And it will become a deep inner clarity only to the extent that we practice what Bhagavan is teaching us. The more we go deep within, the more we will, uh, the clearer it will come, become to us. But though all this seems to be real, it's actually just an appearance. We'll be able to recognize that more clearly. But that is, it'll still seem to us to be real, but there'll be a type of clarity, but we're able to, to, to see through this uh, seeming reality. Though it still seems to be real, it's less convincingly real than it was previously. So uh, understanding Bhagavan's teachings is a great help to us in following this path. But the 
so long as the understanding is merely a conceptual understanding, it's only a very limited use. That 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 is by reading his teachings and understanding these things, we we get a certain degree of clarity, but it's only at a superficial level of the mind. It's not a deep inner clarity. To make that superficial clarity into a deep inner clarity, we need to practice going within more and more and more. Because the more we turn our attention within, what are we turning our attention towards? We're turning our attention towards ourselves, towards that fundamental awareness of our own being, I am. That is the original light, the light that illumines the mind and enables the mind to know all other things. So um, the physical light, say sunlight, it illumines the world. Because there's sunlight, we're able to see the objects in the world. But by what light are we able to see the sunlight? It's only by the light of the mind. It may be broad daylight, but if we fall asleep, the mind light is switched off and we don't, we, we're not able to see the world or the light. That, so the physical light is illumined by the mind light. The mind light means the, the mind's awareness. And the mind light is derived from the original light which is the light of pure awareness, the light of I, that is ever shining in our heart as I am. So when we are practicing self-investigation, we are turning our attention within towards the original light, the light of pure awareness, I am. That's why Bhagavan, in that first paragraph of Nana, which I, I spoke about a little earlier, he, he, say, he describes the practice of self-investigation as jnana vichara. That means awareness investigation. That is, we are investigating that awareness I am. So that is the original light. The more we turn our gaze towards that original light, the, the more we, we, we are, so to speak, bathing in light. We are bathing in that cl inner clarity. So our mind naturally becomes, uh, uh, all these things become clearer and clearer to us. This is why the deeper we go in the practice, the more clear Bhagavan's teachings will become to us. That is, when we first read Bhagavan's teachings, we understand them to a certain extent, but only to a very limited extent. The more we go into the practice, the more... Uh, the, the more clearly we will understand what he's saying, and the more clearly we will understand not just the meaning of the words, but the implications of the words, the deep inner implications. So Bhagavan's teachings become clear to us to the extent to which we go deep in this practice of self-investigation. So the, the answer to the questions, um, uh, why not? Why why why? Why does he? Why did this person who asked the question feel helpless when he's up against serious problems? It is because though you understand the the, the teachings of Bhagavan at the conceptual level, you haven't yet gone deep enough into the in, into the practice for it to become a deep inner clarity. How deep is deep enough? Well, none of us have gone deep enough, because if we had gone deep enough, we would no longer be here. But it's a matter of extent. To the extent to which we go deep within, to that extent, will, there, will, that clarity, will our mind be clarified? And to the extent that our mind is clear, to that extent, we will not be perturbed by the, all the 
problems of life, by the illnesses, by the bereavement, by the suffering. It doesn't mean if we're bereaved, if we lose someone who's dear to us, yes, we will. We all feel sad, but we will be less impacted by it. That is, though we'll be sad, we will also we'll be detaching ourselves from that mind which is saddened by that uh, uh, that very tragic event of bereavement. So um, we, we, but the deeper we go within, the more we are separating ourselves from the person we seem to be. Yes, we still seem to be this person, but th that uh, the, the identification with this person is becoming less and less strong. So we, we're able, at least to a certain extent, to distance ourselves from the person we seem to be. So this person we seem to be may be undergoing all the joys and sorrows of life, but we are aware of ourselves as something other than this. We are that which is, uh, we, we are the, sometimes it's described as the witness of all this. Though, though we, we, we experience all these joys and sorrows, at the same time we're aware of ourselves as something one step back as it were, but that which is aware of the, not only of the joys and sorrow, but also of the one who is experiencing the joys and sorrow. That, that type of clarity comes to the extent to which we go deep in this practice of self-investigation. So the answer to the question, why not, is because you haven't yet gone, uh, that, well, none of us have yet gone deep enough in this practice, but the deeper you go, the less you will find these things um, affecting you. And the next question is, what am I doing wrong? You're not doing anything wrong. It's just that though you're practicing self-investigation, you haven't practiced enough yet. So the only thing to do is to persevere in the practice. The more we persevere, the deeper within we will go. We won't be able to measure how deep we're going, but the more we attend to ourselves, the more naturally we'll be sinking, sinking, sinking down into the heart. Um, uh, and the third question is, how can this be changed? Same answer, persevere in the practice. The more we yeah. practice, the, the slowly, 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 the, the more we practice our vishaya vasanas, that means our inclinations to go outwards will be weakened, and our satvasana, the inclination to, to hold on to our being and to sink deep into our being, to be as we actually are, that will increase in strength because the nature of vasanas, vasanas means inclination, the nature of vasanas is they are strength, they have no strength of their own. They derive their strength from us. So we we strengthen the vasanas to the extent to which we um we allow ourselves to be swayed by them. It's supposing I have a have a liking for chocolate. The more I indulge in that liking, the, the stronger that inclination to eat chocolate will become and the more difficult it is for me to resist it. But if I, if I finally make myself sick and I decide, okay, now I have to stop eating chocolate, the inclination may be very strong, but because I don't want to make myself sick, I decide not to eat chocolate. And the, the more I 
I avoid eating chocolate the weaker that inclination becomes until after some time the inclination drops off completely. And I think, why was I so attached to eating chocolate? It's, uh, it's, uh, what is it after all? It's nothing. Um, we, we, I, I cite this as an example. I mean, we, 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 there must be examples for all of us in our life where we, we experience a strong inclination towards something, but decide that thing isn't good. And by by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by that inclination, the inclination becomes weaker. So, vishaya vasanas means the inclination to attend to vishayas. Vishayas means objects or phenomena. In other words, the inclination to attend to anything other than ourselves is a vishaya vasana. And there are innumerable vishaya vasanas, but by holding on to self-attentiveness, we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by any Vishaya Vasana. So the Vishaya Vasana is weakened. And why are we holding on to self-attentiveness? Because of this, what Bhagavan calls Sat Vasana, that is the love to hold on to our own being. So that is strengthened because we're allowing ourselves to be swayed by that instead of allowing ourselves to be swayed by other things. So the more we persevere in this practice, the more the Vishaya Vasanas will lose their strength and the Sat Vasana will gain the strength. When the Vishaya Vasanas lose their strength, we'll be less affected by things. If the doctor tells us we're going to die in two weeks, okay, let it be. What is life and what is death? It comes, his body came. I've, I haven't always experienced this body as I. I don't even, even when I'm asleep, I don't experience this body as I, but I exist very happily. So why should I worry about this body? So there'll be a type of detachment. So we'll be less affected by that news. Or if supposing someone very dear to us passes away, naturally we'll feel bereavement, naturally we'll feel sadness, but at the same time, we'll be able to, uh, separate ourselves from that sadness and recognize, yes, it is the nature of life. People live and people die. And when those who are dear to us die, we feel sad and we feel uh, we, all these feelings are natural. It's part of a, it's, it's a, a, an inherent part of embodied existence. So long as we rise as ego, we will undergo all these types of experiences with sadness and joy and uh, um and fear and attachment, all these things. It's the very nature of ego to experience all these things. But by going more and more deep within, we are separating ourselves from this ego. So we are less impacted by our ego nature and we find more refuge and uh, uh, respite and uh, in our own real nature, which is just being. Wonderful. I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. <laughs> and then some, Michael, uh, very, satisfactory, very satisfactory answers. I'm not flattering you. You are a master at answering questions. Well, and then you answer the question, you succinctly. Yeah. Then you come back and answer it, maybe even at the same thought, but co uh, coded in a different verbiage. It yeah. brings more truth into it. And then yeah. you'll bring supportive stories on the side. I just, yeah. I just love it. Uh, but, no doubt, if somebody asks you a question someday, you'll take the full two hours to answer that one question. And you probably are <laughs> half. But thank you. But uh, but but why why how am I able to do this? It's only because <laughs> of Bhagavan's teachings. Because if we if we understand his teachings clearly, all the answers are there. Mm -hmm. if, 
that, that is, the answers to all questions are implied in his teachings. So if we're very familiar with his teachings, but when, whatever question may be asked, we'll, we'll find the answer there in his teaching because I'm not actually saying anything of my own. This is all just what, what I've learned from Bhagavan. Uh, I think the proof is in the pudding. There are 16 of us here uh, mm. on this rather obscure Ramana channel uh, <laughs> once a month with you here. We're here because we've learned this ourselves, not to the degree you have, yes. but I wish I could share it with others the way you do it. Yes. I want to go to, let's see, Melissa had her hand up next, but before Melissa, we come to you, uh, Leah wrote in the chat line that she had a follow-up question. Leah, are you still with us? you want to ask that question? Yes, I am. Thank you so much. I'm just going to get my little dog here tethered so I can properly ask. Um, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be able to ask a question, and um, I don't take it lightly that um, I've got this opportunity. Um, I, I have a unique question, I think, um, and it and it dovetails off of what you talk about uh, in the dreaming. No, it dovetails off what you talk about when we're dreaming. We have dreams that um, aren't real. Uh, you know, we'll chased by a tiger or something like this. You know, we, or we're flying. Um, I had a, um, the, the very brief backstory is that uh, um, by virtue of three dreams that I had um, where I dreamt something just unspeakable and uh, I asked and I inquired about the truth of the dream and it turned out to be true. And it uh, really changed the course of my life. Uh, so I had an experience that we would call in psychology as a precognitive dream. And I was not under the influence of anything, nothing like that. I'm actually a person in recovery. And I was thusly led to uh, delving more deeply into my recovery process and then to Advaita. But it's a question that has haunted me for quite some time because a lot of yourself included and a lot of teachers say that when we dream, our dreams are never real. But in my experience, and, and I'm, I'm not sad about it or mad about it because, because of the three dreams, although the content was horrifying and the outcome was horrifying, it led me ultimately to this path. So I just had a question about precognitive dreams insofar as that in my experience, uh, I had dreams that turned out to be real. So I just wanted to hear your feedback on that. Please. Okay, right. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we, everyone probably has had some dreams where you, you dream one thing um, at night and it may be a very, very minor thing. And then something happens the next day and it's, you, you think, oh, it's a, I saw that in the dream last night or I saw something very similar. So that is very common, but that doesn't make it real. That is, what do you mean when you say it's real? Is it, but it corresponds to the waking state. But the waking state is no more real than the dream. Both what we now take to be the waking state, as taught by Bhagavan, is just a dream. 
so since the dream, the, both the waking, what we take to be the waking state and dreams, both are mental fabrications. They're both a projection of our own vasanas, our own thoughts we see as the world. So um, often we we dream things at night that we've experienced in the day. Sometimes we dream things at night and later experience them in the day. So it's all because it's, they're all projected from the same source. The source, in this case, be, meaning the, our, our particular set of vasanas. So just because you, you dream something and then you see it the next day in the waking state doesn't mean the dream is real. It just means it corresponds to the waking state, but both are unreal. In this, in this context, it's important to understand what Bhagavan means by real. When Bhagavan talks about something being real or unreal, what he means by real is what actually exists. What he means by unreal is something that, though it may seem to exist, it doesn't actually exist. According to Bhagavan, the only thing that actually exists is our self, our real nature. What we actually are, that alone is what actually exists. Everything else seems to exist only in the view of ego. And ego itself doesn't, um, doesn't actually exist, it merely seems to exist. So, um, when Bhagavan says that what is real is what actually exists, uh, another thing he says in this context is whatever seems to exist at one time and not at another time doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. That is, if something, see if something actually exists, it must always exist. Things that come into existence and go out of existence, existence is not their real nature. This is sometimes illustrated with an analogy of um, that is obviously existence is not a property, but we could, in this respect, it is analogous to a property. So if you take a certain property like heat, certain things are intrinsically hot. Certain things are not intrinsically hot, but they may be contingently hot. For example, supposing you have a... Um, you, you've just cooked some rice, so you've got a pot of hot rice. That that rice is hot, but it's not intrinsically hot because before you cooked it, it wasn't hot. So the rice isn't always hot. So where did the rice get its heat from? It derived its heat from the boiling water. But the water also is not intrinsically hot. It is only sometimes the water is hot. So the, the, the hot water derived its heat from where? From the pan in which it was, um, in, in which you were cooking the rice, and the pan is also not intrinsically hot. So where did it get the, its heat from? It got its heat from fire. Fire is intrinsically hot. Wherever, whenever you have fire, it's always hot. So uh, you 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 cannot have fire for a moment without heat. So. Uh, since fire is intrinsically hot, it's always hot. So if we, if, we, um, if we take this analogy and apply this to existence, anything that is not is intrinsically existent must always exist. Something that exists at one time and not at another time is not intrinsically existing. It borrows its existence from something else. So all phenomena 
seem to exist in whose view? Only in the view of ourself as ego. So they derive their semi existence from the semi existence of ourself as ego. When we don't rise as ego, as in sleep, nothing else seems to exist. So all things derive their semi existence from ego in whose view they seem to exist. But even ego doesn't actually exist because it appears in waking and dream, but it disappears in sleep. So from where does ego derive its existence? It derives its existence from ourself, from our own uh, real existence. Because what is ego? As Bhagavan said, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. In that false awareness, I am this body, you've got two components. You've got one component which is real, namely I am, and the I am is our existence, that is real. Uh, the body is just an adjunct. The body appears and disappears, so it's not real. The one thing that, that exists at all times is I am. That is, in waking, we're aware I am. In dream, we're aware I am. In sleep, we're aware I am. We're not aware of anything else in sleep, but we are aware of our own existence. So our own existence is the only real existence. That's why Bhagavan says, we alone are real. We alone are what actually exists. Everything else derives its semi-existence from, uh, from us. That is, the, the ego that we now seem to be derives its existence from our real existence. And everything else derives its semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. So th that is why we say dreams are not real and waking is not real. That, that is the, the, the standard of reality. And Bhagavan uh, gave, um, he said there are three marks of reality. That is how you can determine something as real. Whatever is real will have three uh, essential characteristics, or in, in Sanskrit they call lakshanas. Lakshanas means marks or characteristics. Those, those three are, it must be eternal. Because anything that exists at one time and not at another time is not real. So it must be eternal. It must be unchanging. Because anything that changes is one thing at one time and uh, uh, another thing at another time. At one time you were a small child. Now, now you're an adult. So since you've changed from being, that's you mean for body, you take, now take yourself to be. Since that body has changed from being a small child into being an adult, it is not real because whatever undergoes change. In, then it was a child, uh, now it's an adult. One day it will become a dead body and will be buried in the ground or cremated or whatever. So it's not real. Um, so it, 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 whatever is real must be eternal. It must be unchanging. And third and most important, it must be self-shining. What he means by self-shining is it must know itself by its own light of awareness. Because other things, for example, in front of me, there's a microphone or a PC. These things don't shine by their own light. They shine only by the light of the mind that sees them. So they are dependent on the mind that sees them or ego that sees them. And ego doesn't shine by its own light. It shines by the light of the fundamental awareness I am. A fundamental awareness I am alone is self-shining. It doesn't depend on anything else to shine.
because it, in sleep nothing else appears, but uh, I am continues to shine there. That is, we continue to be aware of our own existence. So that alone is, I am alone is what is real. I am there is false. I am is real. Is that a, a useful answer to your question? It's perfect, and I'm so glad that I asked. Thank you. <laughs> right, right, right. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Leah. Leah, any follow-up or any comment on it, or do you just want to uh, say it's perfect, which sums it up pretty well? Perfection. Yes. And, and a huge relief, actually. Yeah, a huge <laughs> relief. <laughs> the clarification yeah. helps. And when you, when you said uh, just very succinctly, uh, the dreaming's not real. And of course, and, and then when I thought about it, I thought, well, there's people in the dream. So if the people aren't real, the content couldn't be real. And, and it's just, it's unbelievable to me how simple this is but yet i still get lost in and that's my ego i still get lost in trying to understand so it was very helpful the way you explained yeah. it the dream's not real this isn't real none of it's real great but so yeah. long as you're dreaming the people in your dream seem to be so real even as you think i mean yeah yeah you're right you use the word simple it is absolutely simple but it's hard getting to that simplicity of it yeah and my that, I run that now through everything that happens in my life. I run through the prism of what you've been saying here to Leah. And so when in my conscious state, when somebody hits me with an idea and it's wonderful and I take advantage of it and I do it, I credit that idea. But even that's not real. Even the yes. consequences of my action aren't real. Uh, so it's, yes. it's a what real is You alone are real. <laughs> not you as Ted. Ted is unreal. But you, the what, not even the one who is aware of itself as I am, Ted. The one, that, what is aware of itself as I am alone. That alone is real. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks, Leah. Uh, any other questions? Yes, I see that you have one, Marie, from Paris, right? Um, yes, yes. So my question is, I heard. Um, uh, when we had the Czech woman, uh, I think, um, over, and she said when we go inside, sort of when we inquire, and we have the sense of I, like that we need to go beyond the I. And it seemed to me that, um, I don't know, I thought we had to stay with that, like, feeling of I, or I don't know if, if that, like, what would Ramana say about it or Michael? And I'll, I'll point out here before Michael answers that uh, w when we occasionally have guests, which is very rare, they're speaking for themselves in their own understanding, and they may not necessarily jibe all together with Michael's understanding of it. But I think I know what she means, and if there's time later, I'll talk about it. But thanks for the question and see what Michael has to say. I'll be interested to know what you, you think she means. That is, what did the word... <laughs> I can tell you in a second, uh, I am as who I am, except there's pure awareness is who I am. And, and the pure awareness of self, of my, of, uh, of Atma, I'm just putting these words to support what I'm about to say. Pure awareness doesn't consider anything because pure awareness is only aware of self. 
and an I am I don't think fits into that as it does in a supportive way before we get to that point of pure awareness. I mean, so, we are pure awareness, but to be aware of ourselves is something that we don't have yet. So is pure awareness something other than I, or is it I? It is all there is. <laughs> right. Yes, you could say it's I, you could say it's Atma, you could say it's God, you could say it's everything. What, what is the natural name of awareness? I am, I guess. I, I am, exactly. Yeah. That is what Bhagavan always said. That's why Bhagavan said, the first name of God is I or I am, because I is the natural, it doesn't matter the language, right? that is, we happen to be speaking English now, so we say I. It's not the word that matters, but whether whatever be the language, or even if we know no language, that is that animals don't have language in the same way we have, but they're aware of themselves as I. Not, they, they're not the word I, but that, 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 that self-awareness, that awareness of, 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 of their own existence is there in all sentient creatures. So uh, and all the, the natural name that we, by which we all refer to ourselves is I. In whatever the language may be, the language is not a it's not a linguistic thing. It's not about the word, but the the in whatever language we know, we naturally refer to ourselves as using a, the first person pronoun in that language, because the first person pronoun is the name by which we refer to ourselves. So the natural name of awareness, when we talk of awareness. We're talking about awareness as if it's it, as if it's a third person. But actually, awareness is never a third person. Awareness can never be an object. Awareness, now it seems to be the subject, but actually the pure awareness is not even the subject. It's the, it's the reality underlying the subject. The subject is ego. So according to Bhagavan, I, since I is the word that refers to ourself, how can we ever go beyond ourselves? That is, that's why Bhagavan made a clear distinction between, he said, the, the awareness uh, I am is our real nature. The awareness I am this body, I am Ted, I am Mari, I am Michael, I am whoever, that is ego. That is the... the what is always real is I am. It, what is unreal is the adjunct. Since ego is an adjunct completed awareness, it is unreal because the adjunct is unreal. But though ego as such is unreal, it has an element of reality in it. That element of reality is I am. What does I am mean? I am means I exist. So the... the I means what? I is the awareness. That is, the awareness is referring to itself as, 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 as I, and the awareness and is what the awareness is what exists. That is in verse um, twenty-three of Upadeshundia, Bhagavan gives a very, a very simple but very deep argument. He says. Because of the non-existence of any other awareness, to be aware of what exists, what exists is awareness. That is, the, 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 that he puts it very succinctly. What that means is, 
if the awareness of what exists was something other than what exists, it would be a non-existent awareness. And a non-existent awareness couldn't be aware, aware of anything because it's non-existent. If, if, if awareness but knows what exists was something other than what, that is, if what exists were other than awareness, it would not be, it would be a, something devoid of awareness. Whatever is devoid of awareness seems to exist only in the view of other things. So existence or what exists and awareness cannot be two different things. So he said, because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. And then he concludes that verse by saying, awareness alone exists as we. That is, the implication of that is what, is what he refers to in the first sentence as what exists and as awareness is ourself. We ourselves are that. That is, so when we say I am, I is the name of awareness and am means exists. So it's, it, it's, I am denotes such it, our existence and our awareness, which are one and the same thing. So we can never go beyond I. We can go beyond the ego, which is the adjunct mixed I, but going beyond the ego is not going beyond I. It's going beyond the adjuncts, or it's not even going beyond the adjuncts. The adjuncts drop off and the pure I alone remains. So there can never be a moment when we are not aware of ourselves as I, or I am. Even in, even in sleep, where everything else disappears, we don't go beyond I. We remain as... As, as the pure I, the, uh, the, the, the mere uh, awareness I am, nothing more than that. Mm. Some th but when we read Bhagavan, we need to read very carefully because Bhagavan, Bhagavan expresses things in a very simple way. Um, sometimes in the same sentence, he will use the word I more than once, and in one place he'll be referring to ego, and in another place, he'll be referring to our real nature. For example, in verse 21 of, of, um, of Upadeshundia, um, he refers to the previous verse. In the previous verse, he said that when, when I dies, that's when ego dies, what shines forth as I am I, the one thing that shines forth as I am I, that is the... That is the the infinite whole, that, is the, the, that alone is what is real. Then he says in the next verse, verse 21, that is always the, the meaning or the, the import of the word I. Because of the absence of our non-existence, even in sleep, which is devoid of I. When he says sleep is devoid of I, he means sleep is devoid of ego. He doesn't mean it's completely devoid of I, it's devoid of the adjunct mixed I, namely ego. What, but we don't cease to exist. So I exist without I. That means the pure I exists without the adjunct mixed I, because the, there are no adjuncts in sleep, just the pure I alone remains. So we, when, we, when we read Bhagavan's teachings, we need to think very carefully about what he means. When he says sleep is devoid of I, what does he mean by that? He means it's devoid of ego. But at the same time, he's in the same sense, he's saying we don't cease to exist. So are we something other than I? No. What he means is we are the pure I. So we have a true import of the word I. Because we exist 
even in the absence of the ego, the ego, which is the adjunct die in sleep, in sleep. So to say that we have to go beyond I, Bhagavan would never express it in that way. He would say we have to go beyond ego, but who is to go beyond ego? That is, ego has to merge back into the pure awareness I am. If ego merges back, the pure awareness I am alone remains. So it's not really going beyond I, it is the dissolution of I. Because who is to go beyond I? I, I have to go beyond I. It's impossible. So all that is necessary, because what is ego? Ego is nothing but that pure I mixed and conflated with adjuncts. By turning our attention back within, the adjuncts drop off. That is, when we turn our attention back within, the adjuncts drop off, and we remain at the pure awareness I am. That is the subsidence or dissolution or uh, annihilation of ego. Very good, Michael. I really appreciate it. That answers my questions about it, too. Marie, does that fulfill your expectation uh, to that question? Yes, yes. I um, Because I, I was confused, because before um, following Ramana, I followed uh, Muji and Neo Advaita, and there was this sense that they were saying that you, like the first step is like presence, is I am, and the second step is going beyond this I am. And I think uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj also said that. Yeah. And I find it confusing. Like when Ramana said, like, there are no two eyes, but it's the same I, whether it's ego or pure I. And I find it a lot clearer and also like self-containing, you know, like as a... Yeah. Yeah, to, to say to go, I mean, the saga that uh, I, I don't know what he said in Marathi, but in, in so many English books it's recorded, he talks about going beyond I am. He says, I am is the first thing to arise, but I am means I exist. So I am refers to our existence. When, when we say, I am this body, or I am Marie, or I am Michael, or I am Ted, that is not our existence, that is our identity. So am is there, functioning there to identify ourselves. A is B. Uh, I, I is, is Michael. So it, it is there, am is used as a copula to, to, to link together the I and the, the person we take ourselves to be. But when we say I am alone, there am means I exist. It's talking about our existence, and our existence is always real. We can't go beyond our existence. That, I mean, that makes no sense at all. So talking about going beyond I am, is, it just shows a lack of, of a clear understanding. Of, Bhagavan has expressed it so clearly and so simply. When he distinct, that is, but as you say, Bhagavan emphasized there's only one I. Then what is the distinction between the real I and ego? It's the same I, but the same I uh, in its pure condition is, is the pure I. When it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts, it's ego. If you see a snake, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, there are not two things there, a rope and a snake. There's only one thing there. The difference between the snake and a rope is not a difference in substance. It's a difference in appearance. 
What actually is there is only a rope. It appears to be a snake, but the snake is never anything other than a rope. Likewise, ego is never anything other than our real nature. It seems to be something other than our real nature because it is mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So all we need to do is to separate ourselves from the adjuncts and we thereby remain as we actually are, as the pure I am. And how do we separate ourselves from adjuncts? By turning our attention within. Because the adjuncts are not holding on to us. We are holding on to the adjuncts. When we allow our mind to go outwards, we hold on to these adjuncts. We identify ourselves first as, I am this person. And then we're aware of other things. So the, it, and even our, our being aware of other things, we're holding on to those other things in our awareness. But when we turn our attention back within, we are letting go of all these things and trying to hold on to our own being. So then everything else drops off and the pure being alone remains. It is so, so simple and so clear what Bhagavan has taught us. And there's no room for, for if, if we consider carefully and understand what Bhagavan is saying, there's absolutely no room for confusion. Whereas the way other people explain it, like uh, Nisargadatta, Muji, and all these people who talk about going beyond I am, and this is, this is unnecessarily confusing matters. So do I understand the word adjunct correctly when I say, I am Ted, I'm referring to uh, the ego mind body Ted as an adjunct of I am, I am that I am. Ego is not an adjunct. <clears throat> but I am Ted is. No, I am Ted is not the adjunct. Ted is the adjunct. Ted is the adjunct. Yes. It is what but is ad what is adjoined, what is joined to I am, what is mm -hmm. conflated with I am. So the Ted is the name of a person. It's the name of a body. And that body is not just a physical body. It's a, all the five sheaves are there. There's a, there's, it's a living body and there's a mind and an intellect and a will all acting. All those five are what are called the five sheaves. They are what Bhagavan referred to collectively as body. So the, the adjuncts is all these five sheaves. The, these are, the, when these are mixed and, when, when these are mixed and conflated with I am, the resulting mixture is ego. Is so ego, ego is neither the adjuncts, nor is it the pure I am. It is the, the that's why Bhagavan called it Chit Jadagranti. Chit is means the, the, Chit is awareness. That's the pure awareness I am. Jada means what is not aware. That's referring to the body. When those two are mixed and conflated together, they form a knot. That knot is the granti. Does that apply also to conditions such as I am bliss is I am that I am, but I am sad, the sad would be an adjunct? Or is it just? No, anything you add to, if you say I am Brahman, even Brahman, it becomes an adjunct. Because when we say I am Brahman, what do we mean by Brahman? We have some idea. Brahman is just an idea. Until we know ourselves as we actually are, we don't know what Brahman means. It's just an idea, something very big, the whole, infinite whole. We, we've got some idea in our mind. It's Satchitananda. We, so we are identifying ourselves with something. That's why Bhagavan said, the great, there's a term, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, Mahavakya. The Mahavakya, that Mahavakya means a great 
statement or great saying. There are four Mahabakyas in the Vedas, one in each of the Vedas. The Mahabakyas occur in Upanishads. Those four Mahabakyas, what they all have in common is they express what is called Jiva Brahmaikya. Jiva means the soul, Brahman means Brahman, and Aikya means oneness, the oneness of soul and Brahman. In other words, the, the, the identity, of the, they, they're all statements that say the soul is nothing other than Brahman. Those four great statements are, the most famous of them is Tattvamasi, you are that. Tat is referring to Brahman, Tum is referring to what you're experiencing as I. They are one and the same. Another one is Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Another one is I am Atma Brahman. This self is Brahman. This self means referring to I myself am Brahman. Um, and the other one is uh, Pragnanam Brahman. That means this very, uh, Pragnanam means awareness. So it implies this very awareness is Brahman. So these are all statements uh, expressing our identity with Brahman. But Bhagavan said, the greatest of all the Mahavakyas is not any of these four Mahavakyas. The greatest of the Mahavakyas is the Mahavakya in the Bible. I am that I am. I think I am that I am is not actually a very accurate, or it's not a... It, it's maybe a word-for-word -word translation of the original, but it doesn't convey the meaning very clearly. I think what is meant, what was meant by the original statement is, I am is what I am. Because in the very next sentence, they, this is what God says to Moses, in the very next sentence, God says, say that I am has sent you. Because Moses had asked, who shall I say has sent me? Uh, what, is, what is your name? Who shall I say has sent me? So God says, I am is what I am. Say I am has sent you. So why Bhagavan said that is the greatest of all the Mahavakyas? Because what actually are we? We cannot be anything other than ourselves. So our true identity is only I am I. What am I? I am only I am. I'm nothing other than I am. So I am I. That's why Bhagavan so often uses this term, ahamaham, or nan nan. That means I am I. So to say I am anything other than I is, is, is whatever other thing you, you say, I am bliss. Bliss, you have some idea. What is bliss? Sometimes I experience bliss. Sometimes I experience sadness. So you're not, we're not actually experiencing that bliss as ourself. Yes, bliss is our real nature. But so long as there's, we, we take it as two things, I am and bliss, they, you, they, there's, uh, you're, you're, you're distancing yourself from bliss as if it's something other than yourself and then identifying yourself with that. So the, the, the clearest and least ambiguous expression of our real nature is I am that I am. I, or I am I. I am is what I am. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, and Marie, you're satisfied? Sorry, yes. when, when you say, I am only I, but what about if you think or if you realize that everything is I, then could you say? No. You, you, so long as you have everything, everything, how many, when we say everything, there are many things, aren't there? But I is yeah. one. How can I be many things? 
So, so long as we, our real nature is one and indivisible, so long as we see manyness, Bhagavan says in, in verse 13 of Uludunaptu, Bhagavan says in the first sentence, jnana mam tane me. That means oneself who is jnana alone is real. Jnana there means awareness. It implies pure awareness. So what is real is only ourself, only ourself who is uh, pure awareness. Then in the next sentence, he says, nana bam jnanam. That means awareness of multiplicity is ignorance. So, so long as we're aware of more than one, that is ignorance. Because multiplicity appears in whose view? Only in the view of ego. In the view of our real nature, our real nature is pure awareness. So not, there's nothing other than it. So nothing else appears in its view. So even to say... Though it is said everything is Brahman in the Upanishads, Bhagavan has refined that. In, in verse 26 of Uludhunaptu, Bhagavan says ego is everything. That is what Bhagavan says in that verse is, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. This is our experience. In waking and dream, we rise as ego and all these all these uh, myriad of uh, multitude of phenomena appear in in sleep ego subsides and everything else disappears so everything appears only in the view of ego so only when ego rises everything comes into existence when e ego doesn't exist everything doesn't exist Therefore, then bhagavan says handeye yabamam ego alone is everything or ego itself is everything so is Bhagavan contradicting what's said in the uh, Upanishads? In the Upanishads, it said, all this is Brahman. But Bhagavan says, all this is ego. Is, is there a contradiction there? No. Because if this ego that uh, is now seeing all this multiplicity, if it turns its attention within to see who am I, it finds itself to be the, that infinite whole that is called Brahman. So, uh, what appears as all this is ego, and what appears as ego is Brahman. Therefore, what the Upanishads say is correct, but they miss out the important step. They, the, the missing link is that it is ego that appears as everything. That is, in, when, you're, when we dream, what we are seeing as that dream is only ourself. The mind sees itself as a dream world. So, Likewise, it is ego that is seeing all this multiplicity. It is ego that's seeing itself as all this multiplicity. So all everything is ego. And ego, if it investigates itself, it finds itself to be Brahman. That's why in the last sentence of that verse 26, after saying ego itself is everything, he said, therefore investigating what it is, is giving up everything. That means if we investigate what this ego is, ego will subside and dissolve back into its source and everything else will cease to exist along with it. Everything else is ego. Everything else is ego. I think mm. I made that turnaround in this group. I believe it was with you. Maybe it was mm. with one of the readings. Yes. Maybe somebody told me yes. this. That Ramana once said, even your last breath is ego, uh, in that it's not real. It's not yes. a breath at yes. all. 
Yeah. So that makes it even clearer to see that none of this is real other yeah. than the I yeah. am. Yeah. But we we shouldn't we shouldn't draw a wrong inference from this because Bhagavan says everything is ego. We shouldn't think, okay, if everything is ego, Bhagavan said to investigate what this ego is, so I can begin to investigate what this PC is, what this uh, microphone is, what this table is. No. So long as we see everything, we're looking away from ourselves. In order to investigate what we actually are, we need to turn our attention away from everything, back towards the eye in whose view everything appears. To whom do all these appear? To me. Who am I? We turn our attention back within. I have a question. Yes. So let us say that all our egos are annihilated. Mm. So what is awareness aware of when there is nothing? It's not aware of anything. It is just aware. What does pure awareness mean? Pure awareness, according to Advaita, means awareness but is not aware of anything other than itself. But itself is not an object of its of awareness. But if it is aware of itself, then wouldn't that be an object, subject no, that, merging? That's, and that's why Bhagavan sometimes said, I is such an awareness, but is not even aware of itself. What he meant by that is, it's not a, itself is never an object of its awareness. That is, Awareness is aware of itself in the sense, but just by being itself, it's aware of itself. But itself is never an object of its awareness. So when you know anything other than yourself, knowing something other than ourself is an act of knowing. But knowing ourself is not an act of knowing. That's why Bhagavan said in verse um, 26 of Upadeshundiya, Tanai iritale tanai aridlam. No, being oneself alone is knowing oneself. So it is not knowing a one thing, knowing another thing. We know ourselves just by being ourselves because we are awareness, and awareness always knows itself. It doesn't know itself as an object, it just knows itself by being itself. So it's a it's it's a knowledge or an awareness of a completely different order. Now we talk, whenever we talk about being aware of something, you've got two things. You've got the awareness and you've got the thing that it's aware of. Subject and object. But it's, it's an awareness that is beyond that uh, duality of subject and object. Right. And so what, what is that? It's like, you know, it's like in a vacuum. Awareness just exists. It just is. Yes, we can say it's like, but it's not actually like anything. That is, it is beyond, it is anivachanir. It's indescribable, inexplicable. It, it's beyond the reach of words. It's beyond, why? Because it's beyond the reach of thought. That I get, yeah. That so, I get. So, but so you know, whatever, the whatever we try to say of it will always fall right. short. If you want to know it, you have to be it. Right, because the word awareness itself is, I feel, a misnomer in a way because it talks about uh, being aware 
as if it's an active word. All, all words are inadequate yeah. because words. We why did we uh, develop language? It's to negotiate our so our way around in this world of multiplicity. So language. That is why Bhagavan said, the only language that can reveal the truth is silence. Silence. Right. Because silence is our own real nature, the very nature of ourselves. That that what you call that vacuum, that empty space, is is silence. Is some. You know, a lot of people think that being totally detached to things and being in a state of equanimity and not being influenced by any happening is living in awareness. No. So that cannot be true. No, it's not. That that is, you you can never be attached, completely detached from everything. The very fact that you're aware of anything means you've attached yourself to it. You've grasped it in your awareness. So we, when we talk of attachment and detachment, these are relative terms. We can be relatively detached. We can be detached to a certain extent. But if we want to detach ourselves from everything completely, we first have to detach ourselves from the adjuncts that constitute this, that constitute ego. If we detach ourselves from these adjuncts, then we remain just as I am, and then there's nothing other than I am. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 28 of Upadeshundi that the answers to all these questions are there in Bhagavan's works if, we've, uh, if we're familiar with them and understand what he's saying in them. In verse 28, Bhagavan says, if one, when one knows what the nature of oneself is, then anadi, ananta, akanda, ananda. Anadi means beginningless. Ananta means endless or limitless, infinite. Akanda means unbroken. It implies undivided. Uh, uh, ananda, uh, being, awareness, happiness. That alone is what exists. So that's why Brahman is, they say Brahman is just an identity given to that which has no identity. Yes. The word Brahman is inadequate. What is the natural name of Brahman? I. That's why Bhagavan said, rather than saying, I am Brahman, the better way of expressing it is, I am I. Because there are no two things, there's only one thing. So how can I be anything other than I? Whoops, what happened here? You there? Yes. Okay. Si silence has descended. Yeah, well, it's uh, oh, was, silent. Not silence doesn't descend. It doesn't come from heaven. It emerges <laughs> from within. Well, that was because I hit a button to find out what was still in the chat room, and all of a sudden <laughs> it went silent. <laughs> well, we'll turn to Michael for the last comments on whatever he would like to say before we bid everyone goodbye. Michael, the last minute or two is yours. This has been wonderful, by the way. <laughs> and your silence is quite loud. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that is, 
uh, as Bhagavan said, ultimately, silence alone can convey it. But, but of course, this is just a gimmick. I'm just keeping quiet. This is not the real silence Bhagavan is talking about, because the silence Bhagavan is talking about is not the physical silence, the silence without noise. It's not the mental silence. It is the silence that is our own real nature, the eternal silence, the silence that exists even now, in spite of all the noise, in spite of the noise of the rising of ego, the silence always alone exists. Yeah, yeah. And in pure awareness, what is there to be worth thinking about? There's nothing, not only not what is there to be worth thinking about, there's nothing to think about at all. Not only is there nothing to think about, there's no one to think about it. <laughs> because the thinker is ego. And there's no mind with which to think nothing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> well, this has been that a very is why silence alone can express it. No more Ramanaya.